Welcome to the Big Kickoff Football Podcast with myself, Roy Shanahan, Mr. David Bugle, and from the Big Kickoff, it's Neil Dobbs. Of course, we'll talk loads about the Premier League and the Champions League, but there's only one place to start, and that's remembering a certain number 10 for Argentina. He's not maybe as quick off his line as other goalkeepers tend to do, and uh, that ball was played through to him, but here's Maradona again. He has Burchaga to his left and Valdano to his left. He doesn't. He won't need any of them. Oh, you have to say that's magnificent. There is no debate about that goal. That was just pure football genius. And the crowd in the Azteca Stadium stand to him. Inside one, away from another. And the coolness under pressure to play the ball home with the side of his foot. If the first was illegal, the second was one of the best goals we've seen in this championship. Dave, what was your first memory of Diego Maradona? I can't really say exactly when we first one because I'm sure I remember games before that game. But basically, obviously, that's the one I remember distinctly because obviously it's been reminded over the last 34 years. So it probably would be that game, to be honest. Yes. I do remember little snippets, but because I was so young, like I was six, and I do remember that World Cup, so I'm not going to pretend I remember 100% anything before that. So it would be that game, 100%, the the, uh, the England game, where, where we just, like, obviously you've just heard that clip of that great goal, and the, as, as as many say, the best World Cup goal ever. When you break it down, it's, it's, it's brilliance. Is it poor defending or just pure brilliance? Who cares? Who cares? Just pure brilliance. Um, in that sense, yeah, fair enough. One or two of them looked like they were they were walking uh, <laughs> with, with concrete blocks on their on their feet. But it, it to be honest, it, those four or five minutes truly epitomised Diego Maradona in a weird sense in his whole career. The absolute genius, but um, the the other aspects of of, of his life. Uh, it, but that then four or five minutes almost encapsulates the, the balance, the yin and the yang of it all. You know. Um, with the handball, like as much as we think it's funny and it's hilarious, but if there was a similar handball which we don't see too funny. So if anything, we should have a similar opinion for both. One, if one's funny, well then so is the other, you know. But that kind of encapsulates them four or five minutes, like kind of his his life, you know, the sheer genius that it is. But unfortunately, the the darker aspect of, of, of what blighted is his life, and obviously the the second half of his football career. Neil. When you look at Maradona, you look at other great players, Pele, Messi, I suppose you'll have Ronaldo up there. People talk about George Best. You can, I suppose there's a, a list there of players. Where do you put him? Um, I put him at the top. Uh, I actually wrote about him there in April after watching the documentary on the TV, which was an absolute cracking documentary on him. Um, and when it got down to the end of it, yeah, I compared him to Messi, I compared him to Ronaldo because they're the modern day greats. But uh, he had a little bit of everything. I think he had the skill and the power and the drive of Messi, the strength of Ronaldo, but he played a deeper line ball. He could score, he could set up. Um, a ferocious competitor, absolutely ferocious. And as far as being, I don't think I can remember many players that could you could build a team around and he could elevate from a low position up to a number one position the way he did Maradona was the one-off. 
Neil, you're left footer. I'm not sure you hit the heights Diego reached, but when you listen to coaches <laughs> and managers about how you need to be two-footed in the game, Maradona made a mockery of that, didn't he? He was so amazing with just that left foot that the right was nearly just for balancing all the time. Yeah, I was once told Roy that I was the most left-footed player that a person had ever seen in their life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that's a, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I don't think it was, but uh, yeah, he did make mockery of it. And again, I mean, years on, how many players could you actually say that are so comfortable with both feet that you couldn't tell them apart? And uh, yeah, I guess that's a, another thing that you could throw out there. Another reason why he was as good as he was. There was just something special about him and. Um, like this is a kid that was picked up at the age of eight that was identified as an eight year old as someone that was going to go somewhere and um, completely taken out of the poverty situation and bought to a club for you know a career to to start off his career so obviously he showed signs of that at a very very young age and then but I mean who would have known what he would have turned into at the end of it Dave he was no doubt probably the Scottish player of the year in 1986 but he then went on <laughs> to Napoli and changed Italian football forever, really. Yeah, like, basically, Napoli were to the Cosmopolitans uh, up north in Turin and Milan, and I suppose to a certain extent Rome, they, they were the shit in the shoe of, of everyone. Um, as you see in that movie, I watched about an hour of it last night, but my DVR, because I recorded it when it was on in the summer, and uh, it unfortunately went wrong uh, at the 86 World Cup moment but I was watching it again and some of the songs they sing about the town and they really are like one of them basically the, the common team and banner is wash themselves that's what they were looked at and in, in terms of football they I think they won two cups before that so in the, the eight years he was there it was two Scudettos and uh, uh, some Coppa Italia and the UEFA Cup so he literally was came in as the saviour and then like the way we would have JFK in the pubs or in the, in the houses, there's pictures of Maradona in probably every house in, in, in Naples and, of course, on, on, on walls still to this day and they still sell us dolls and stuff like uh, like you would like when you're in a tourist shop. Their, their knick-knack shops would, would be the same. He literally brought them from, from the bottom to the top and put it to the Cosmopolitan uh, Juventus and Milan's and Roma's and, and put them in their place for a few years and it was more than a match for them. Now, obviously, at the very start, when he first got there, would you believe Verona won the league? And I think it was their one and only time to won the league. So, it, like, Italy was the place to go and it was the place to be. But slowly but surely, they gave him a supporting cast. And for them few years, it was very special, the battles between them and Milan for, for, for top for top prize. Because you remember, because it used to be on a Monday night in RT, on RTE. Do you remember that, lad? I don't remember that, no. Yeah, before Scudetto, they used to show Italian football on a Monday night and the tip for tap between themselves and Milan for them few years was, was pretty special. And when when he joined, they had finished 12th the season before. No team from the South had won the, yeah. the, the league before. So when you look at Napoli then, how he transformed them, they were, would you say they were like a Newcastle United? I was trying to think who would they be. And Newcastle probably had a bit more success because like they've had nothing. So I was thinking more Sunderland to be honest. Ooh, that's... that's Even Leicester. Ooh. It's under than Leicester. They're not the same. Are they? Well, maybe Sunderland had more success. I don't know. Uh, the North East are grumpy. What, what, what if Sunderland won? It may be a cup. I don't know. You know, at least... cup. Okay, all right. Yeah, all right. We, we, we'll go with that. Um, I think Newcastle had won. I think Newcastle won the league. But that's... It's the equivalent of that, per se, to come in and, and do what they did. And 
he, he obviously he was eight this the year after, and then slowly but surely they brought in the one or two decent supporting cast. Obviously, the Brazilian forward Correcca came in, but once he kind of got the one or two right supporting cast with him, they just went up to the next level. And he and some of the things he did, like the the, the indirect free kick against Juventus, where he was only about eight or nine yards away from goal, and he somehow managed to get it over the wall into the top corner. Like what he could do with that left foot, sorry, no one else could. It was it's just beautiful to watch. Great goal, you'll see it many times over the next few weeks, few days. And I believe when they won the league for the first year, there was a week of partying in Naples <laughs> and I believe there was a banner placed up in one of the graveyards stating you don't know what you've missed <laughs> which I thought was <laughs> which I thought was great um, but that was it like. yeah yeah there was a Steve Hodge story there today about the time after the game seemingly the, it, there was two people that the England fans uh, or not fans players were really upset with and disappointed. One was Maradona for the handball goal and the second was Steve Hodge after the game. They absolutely lashed him over in the dressing room after the game because he collected, he swapped shirts with Maradona at the end of the game and seemingly Terry Butcher went absolutely through him and he says, what are you doing? This fella's after cheating us over, you know, a place in the, in the, in the World Cup semi-finals and, you know... He, he he took it on on the chin, but he, I think it was Peter Reid who we partnered up with in the hotel, and they were kind of slagging Peter Reid because he took it out in the bedroom and showed him. Look, I got Maradona's ten, and they were slagging Peter Reid that that's the closest he got to the jersey all day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, seemingly uh, Terry Butcher says, "Well, if I hadn't known, uh, we gave him gave him stick." But he says, if we hadn't known uh, how much it was going to be worth, he says, we all would have had a go at it. Seemingly now, that jersey is worth half a million quid. Easy. So, when you uh, think about it, the most talked about game for the, the bitter, the, 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 the tale of five minutes, you know. But speaking of which, like Shilton, I'm not going to give him much airtime, but still not giving some of the, still kind of like a bailed praise today. Just let it go, mate, and move on. And, even Peter Reid was on off the ball last night, still bitter about it, and um, one or two kind of other shitty rags in England with if only VAR was around in 86 instead of really giving him the credit he deserves. You know, it's it's time to move on, guys, and build the bridge and get effing over it. I thought that was funny because I think it was the star who had it in the front of their paper yep. if, if VAR was around, blah, 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 blah. But if VAR was around, I'd say England would have finished probably with eight men, you know, hacking away at them. So, you know, it's not the same game. So it's it's totally irrelevant. You think they would let it go. I mean, when Thierry Henry goes, we'll, we'll say, oh, yeah, he's a, he was a good player. And uh, you don't have to like the situation, but, you know. You know, tip of a cap to, to d- probably the best that was out there. Dave, you had a little little clip that you wanted me to play. Do you want to kind of briefly tell us what it is? Yeah, speaking of not letting it go, he was over as the um, Argentinian manager against Scotland um, in a frenzy. And of course, a British journalist or an English journalist decided to ask the question and in relation to Terry Butcher and once again, please, but basically, it's, you'll hear the question, but it's another long-winded version of, are you going to say you're sorry for cheating, blah, blah, blah. And he comes up with an absolutely cracking response. Now, there's a bit of Spanish. I don't know if you've cut it in a way, but if, if not, there's a bit of an interpreter that Maradona answers. But the English response is, let's just say it's beautiful. I'm going to play the question first, 
And then we'll go with the answer. You're a proud Argentinian. You're a proud Argentinian. I can only imagine if you were in the position of being in a World Cup quarterfinal and you lost to a hand goal, what your response would be. Can you understand the reaction of Terry Butcher in some manner? So that's the question. Here's his reply. I would say to the, I'd, I'd reply to the, to the young lady, um, England won a World Cup with, with a goal, and it was plain to see by everyone that never crossed the line. <laughs> and so, you know, it was clear that that never went over the line, so I don't think it's fair that anyone should... I don't think it's fair that anyone should judge me. It's not fair that people should judge me when stuff like that went on. He knew what they thought of him, Neil, over in England. Um, I think he also knew what... That was, I think that was before a Scottish game. I think he knew what they thought of him in Scotland and I think he knew very well the rivalry between Scotland and England and that uh, he's probably a fan favourite up there. Yeah, I was just thinking that when you were saying someone had uh, VAR on the back page there today. If VAR was around at 66, they might have won their World Cup. So there you go, yeah. An interesting story for the, if, if you think about it, like, I mean, it, it made it, would it have mattered if that happened against any other team other than England? Would it have been as high profile? I mean, like in fairness, the English had a serious team that year as well. Um, so obviously they've had chances. This is back when England had proper teams and made, you know, and made ways out in tournaments. But uh, yeah, maybe that tightened the issues. They put it up to Argentina for much of that game. But uh, to be fair, it's still a bitter pill to swallow. So bitter that they're still going on about it today. And instead of being gracious and having a moment to say, listen, you know, let's forget about that and, you know, what a great player, yeah. It's a bit disappointing to see them uh, when they react in a negative way and having to get the dig in. One of the goals that I always enjoyed, it was from 86 as well, it was against Belgium. I know that the, the Argentina-England game, that goal was, you know, it's quoted as the best goal ever. But against Belgium, he I thought it was his best game in, in, in that World Cup. He absolutely destroyed them. I just played the, the, the first goal where he drove through four players. Jabbed out his left foot. Cachufo. Maradona. Going at them again. Brilliant run by Maradona. In the best sense of the phrase. And that was, he scored the goal, he sort of was half um, uh, out of balance, but still kept his balance to run away. Yeah, and celebrate. His left foot, was it? His left foot, yeah. I don't think he had a right foot, did he? Oh, no, he had the balance with the right foot, you're right. Yeah, (laughs) balance with the right foot. But it's the next part of the commentary that really summed up Maradona in that World Cup and in fairness when I yeah. I remember watching him in the 94 World Cup and getting so excited that he was back in the Argentinian team I think he was out for and he scored a goal against Greece which was an unbelievable finish and I got so excited at the thoughts of I think I was 18 at the time thoughts of Maradona in a World Cup he really made everyone buzz but after the Belgium after that goal 
this was the commentary and I think it summed up his career uh, uh, in football. And here's the little man again, setting up Valdano. The game seems at the moment to be revolving entirely around Maradona. Here he goes again. They don't know what to do. The defenders are absolutely helpless. He's taking them on one after the other with that surge of pace. They're trying to pull him back. They're trying to read which way he's going to go. And they've got no hope whatsoever. He's taken the game over. And just a world-class player. And if not the best, he's up there. Joint best with a couple of other players. Neil, you reckon... Go on. I know we love to try and tag who's number one or whatever, but would you say he, he's probably the most gifted of them all, regardless of whether people have different permutations for who they think is the best in longevity and titles, but would he be probably the most gifted of them all? It's Just a, pure natural ability. Yeah, I, I look. I think uh, probably. Yeah, I mean he he loved he loved the football. You know, he, the, he the, there was. There was stories about him when he was uh, with the Argentinian national team, and I think it was Gary Lineker who was out with him at the, at the training session, and he was doing a coaching session with the Argentinian team, and he had uh, he was he was after putting on loads of weight, he was uh, smoking a cigar at the time, but he was still getting the ball and curling it over the top of the wall into top corners, and he said even at that stage he just. The ball stuck to him and never went away from him. It was just like super glue. I see that in Messi, and people say, "Oh well, Maradona got kicked around the place." You know, he's a he's a better player. He had to take on these tackles. I'm fairly sure Messi would have to adapt to that at that st- as well. So you can't rule out that. I think they're very similar players, but there's a more uh, street element to Maradona. Where I think I, th- I think he's a stronger player. I think I I, I he probably edges him, doesn't he? he probably edges him a, a little bit. But Messi for me is is is, is brilliant too. Uh, Neil, is there anyone who topples him? Anyone who topples him? Yeah, as um, in anyone who trumps him, you know, in just pure natural skill. Pure natural skill? No, I still don't think so. I think like definitely a very generation now. You know, the Messi Ronaldo scenario, I definitely, I'm definitely in the Messi corner. I think he has skill set, a, a turn of pace. He has a, a kind of a longevity that he plays every minute of the game. Um, I don't think he's had the best maybe last year and a half, two years. But I mean, there's a period of maybe five or six years where, again, he elevated the Barcelona team. Not that they were slouches to an unbelievable team. I think he was the difference in the great Barcelona team of Pep where they won the European Championship, they were just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And I think Messi has that in him. Um, it could only really be Messi that would get anywhere near him, I think, just the way he played. There's obviously there's some brilliant names in there. I mean, let's be honest, so Pelé is, is a household name, but he was still a phenomenal goal scorer. Ronaldo is a phenomenal goal scorer. I just think the skill set Maradona has, he played in a deeper role. You know, he was conscious that every single time he got on the ball, he went on runs that were virtually unmatched game after game. And again, I think what he did in it, he put 
gamble the team absolutely nowhere. Now, bear in mind, look, they had financial backing of every drug cartel in the place, but he still brought them from the situation. Allegedly. No man's land. Absolutely no man's land, allegedly. Uh, to, a, to, a, to winners of the, the toughest league, probably in the world at the time, like the Italian league was the place to be. Um, but his physical power, his strength, his ability to suck in a player to his own pass and that clip you played there his turn of pace in the box was unbelievable to get away from people I've never seen such a small guy move like that um, yeah I, 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 I just can't think of anyone there's plenty of brilliant players there. I mean George Best at the turn of pace and skill but just didn't fulfil probably where he could have gone um, that type of player of his ilk would be uh, they're obviously up there but I don't think anyone passes him Okay, Bugo, I'll give you the last word. <laughs> um, yeah, look, like everything else, no matter what happens, and you will have people who will say certain things about his, his life, but deep down, like everything else, you'll always remember the, the good stuff, and that's what he'll always remember of deep down. And as much as I would have had a bit of a black marking for a little while, because as a kid, the whole... Uh, ben Johnson in 88 kind of got me into a bit of a the old drug cheat really wound me up so when it happened a little bit he wasn't necessarily performance enhancing it was a bit of a black mark for a while but deep down there was never denying just how good he was so in fairness deep, like when it's all said and done and over the years and even now it'll be all the good that he did and what he did on the pitch because he was the first player that really made me Excited on the like about the game, uh, like to another level. Like I knew football and I and I loved football, but he brought it to the next level after that '86 World Cup with some of that skill and magic. So that's what I'll always remember, regardless of whatever else. And deep down, what he did with Napoli and even with Barcelona, when you look back, he had an incredible record considering the guy from from Bilbao tried to do him. But overall, the guy was probably the most gifted of them all and the first mega mega superstar. Um. Unfortunately, wouldn't have the didn't have the protection that say the players have nowadays, um, which is also another factor. But overall, without doubt, in the, he's in the, he's in the top table when it comes to when all is said and done about about world football, world elite footballers, and that's what will ultimately be remembered uh, always and forever. So for me, yeah, as I said, eighty six, he was the one that brought football to the next level for me, and that's what I'll truly remember. Yeah, I think he, he's just, he's that player that excites absolutely everyone who loves football. There's no one who couldn't love uh, Maradona's style of play and what he did. And he got, you know, as they said, the phrase, he got bums off seats, which is, is what football should be all about. OK, we're going to leave it there and it's time for a bit of this. Yes, the Champions League was back after the international break. And Neil, we'll start with you because uh, Liverpool got beaten. A bit surprised by the scoreline, 2-0 to Atlanta home. But then again, there was a bit of chopping and changing in the team. What did you make of Klopp's team that night? Line-up originally, I thought, OK, fair enough. They looked kind of decent up top. Because um, you were starting Salah, you were starting Mane. Little bit surprised that he didn't keep Jota in there. Whether he was more worried about the amount of games he made, and um, just in relation more to the national team rather than to the club team, obviously. Um, 
a big surprise maybe starting Origi up front, which oh, the last few times he's come on, be it in Mane's left wing position or through the middle, he hasn't really done it. Um, but that's probably a little bit of hindsight thrown in there now as well. Uh, back line, I was happy enough with uh, I think uh, Williams, um, centre-back Williams is, is a decent player. I think he needs time to blood him. He needs another centre-half that he trusts. And Klopp is obviously trying to show him trust, which is Jones played in the middle. He's a great game against Leicester on the weekend. I think he kind of picked himself and he's young and he's fresh. Um, so all in all, yeah, I think the team was okay. I just, just, just something lacking with be it turnaround, be it maybe when they had such a cracking game against Leicester and you come down that little bit, they didn't seem to be able to uh, come out of the traps. And I think they missed the trick maybe because, you know, you're after beating them 5-0 away. There's a fear factor there. I think they kind of played Illich up front. They didn't really play one or two of the other guys that might have started up with them. They paid us a bit of respect. And at the end of the day then, I think Liverpool came out very flat in the first half. Um, whereas if they maybe had it gone for them a little bit more positively in the first half hour, got a goal, you know, opened them up a little, it, you know, the least you would have maybe got then was a draw. Um, and then when he went to change, he had the 60-minute mark in mind. Um, they conceded just before it. And then when the guys come on the pitch, like so Robertson, then and Jota, um, obviously they can see another one, which I guess the manner of the goal did surprise me, but uh, it kind of took the sting out of the game then where you expect Liverpool to kind of push on and really get after. Um, it never happened. The Italians did, the Italians did. Sat back. You know, they were tough to break down. And uh, yeah, a little bit of an anticlimax then, I think, for the last half hour, unfortunately. Dave, you hear plenty of managers, Mourinho moaning about the COVID, the international thing. There's not much you can do about that, mm. I suppose. You hear Solskjaer giving out about the times of the games that they, they're getting to play at, you know, half 12 game on a Saturday after playing on a Wednesday night. You hear Klopp saying, basically backing Solskjaer up. Do they have, yeah. do they have a point or is that extra you know, five hours in a day that they're looking for instead of an early morning, a, a, a 5.30 kickoff. Is that going to make much difference? I mean, these have big squads. They, surely they should be able to cope. I mean, that's what they're in the game for. They're, they're supposed to build the team and the squad around being able to compete in, in, in multiple competitions. True, but if you want to compete in the mall, it's, it's, it's near on impossible nowadays. And uh, Yes and no, because you're playing, what was it, Wednesday, and then you're, you're playing now at half 12 on Saturday, and then they're playing at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. You know, it, it's tough nowadays. These guys are next-level athletes, like regardless of what we used to see back in the day. And everything, they, like the rest and recovery, they, it seems to be an obsession now. I don't know the ins and outs of it all, and you could help me out here, but they're, they're obsessed with, it's the rest time more so than the, that they're walking too much. It's, they're not getting that point to really recover and then go at it again and be at their peak, peak level. I don't think that's what it was last night. I just thought Liverpool were bitterly disappointed. Um, sure, what was it? Well, here's my lovely stat for this one. Since Opta began recording the data in the Champions League since 2004, that was the first time Liverpool failed a shot, a t- attempt a shot on target in a home game in the entire competition. Like, they didn't lay a glove on them in, in the attacking sense. And it was fairly disappointing. And they had some of their better players going forward. It was just a complete lack of fluency. But I wouldn't say they were tired, if you know what I mean. But I think it was more 
Klopp made the changes and took the gamble because he obviously wants um, uh, Saturday took, took preference. But it's now typical Liverpool. Now we're going to make hard work of of the group stage once again because there's two points between the three teams. Now we win one of them. It's sorted. But we always just barely get out of the group and that's when we come into our own. But it's the sports science side of it. I don't know the full ins and outs of it, but there must be some elements of it because they're all saying the same thing. And I'm not, I don't really, I'm not too bothered about the injuries, but it's more when they keep going on about the resting side of things, whatever about the training uh, and maybe take it off a couple of sessions. But it's something that I'm not too clued in on and maybe you can help me out on it. But, you know, when there's that many going on about it, are they just being a bit spoiled or is there some element of truth? Yeah, I listen, rest and recovery is important. I know when Manchester United were away, when, when, when the four, one of the first rants was come from Solskjaer talking about playing, who did they beat? They beat Everton, didn't they? They beat Everton 3-1 on the Saturday and they're after playing in Turkey on the Wednesday night. So they didn't get back till midday or something on the Thursday. Yeah, they got back on the Thursday, and and, yeah. and then and they, they had a bad result as well. Which and they had a bad result. The on, yeah, he was under pressure at the time. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering myself. I do understand that there has to be rest and recovery and what have you. But then again, this is what I'm t- saying to you about a squad size. They know that they're going to be in these competitions. They know that they've compete. Is every other team in Europe complaining? I wonder. You know, are the Barcelona's complaining? Are the Bayern Munich's complaining? What you don't you never hear about these teams complaining as much as you do. Now I know we're on the doorstep of England and, and you hear more of it, you know, but you you, you very rarely hear that that this their Spanish league are deeply upset about the, the fixture congestion and when Messi plays seventy games in the year. Do you know what the only difference potentially is now? And and this is just me just thinking out loud as you're asking the question. Bayern Munich let's face it, have won seven or eight in a row. Um, they can play their full team in the, in, in, they've won four from four in the Champions League. They can probably play their strongest game, strongest team during the week. Now, I'm not saying they rest a load of players, but they can make them two or three changes at the weekend and still get their win. Paris Saint-Germain, I think, lost the fourth league game of the season, maybe the second league game of the season, but now they're top again already. So they can make their one or two changes in the league games while Maybe it's the competitiveness of the English league that Liverpool can't really take it easy on Saturday, if you know what I mean, because everyone's jockeying for position. And maybe that's the only difference. Um, obviously, Spanish league is a little bit different, but it's still the two boys are going to be up there first and second by the end of the season. So maybe it's a little bit easier for these guys to maybe rest people in the league compared to, say, Liverpool cities and Spurs and even United, for that matter, just for even Champions League spots. There's going to be serious competition this year. So that's maybe where it's the competitiveness of
was Klopp giving out about rest and stuff when when they went on and and um, won the Champions League, or was he last year when they were in the Champions League when they were yeah, when well, when the league when the league a stroll? I don't remember giving out then. They went in the Champions League, but you don't remember the fact that in the last two or three international breaks, they're playing an extra game. There is no midweek off. They're literally non-stop Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, or a Sunday, Tuesday. There's a little bit different this season. And obviously, at the moment, we're right in the middle of the season and he's not on his own. It's everyone's saying. Um, so last year, we weren't really in the business end of the Champions League, so they were able to focus. And then there was a gap and we weren't in the Champions League anymore, so we were able to just play them league games. So it's completely different. This is a brand new season where it is mental, and, and it's a one-off. Off, and it's a one-off. So did it not just? Ha- this is. I think yeah. my point is, is that it is what it is. What What can you do about it? There is no room to maneuver. Oh no, a hundred percent. But that's maybe what they're saying. As in, as he said, like when he was talking to Jeff Shreve, like you, it, like he's blaming them as well. It's not just the Premier League, you need to talk to each other, you and BT, because you're half the problem as well. Like, maybe if we play, of a, if we all play of a Sunday, the Lloyd's lads are playing Europe, and maybe it's an extra day that could be the difference. And that's, that's the fine margins of the game. And if, if you listen to Solskjaer and Klopp in more detail, that's what they're asking for. They're not asking for a weekend off or a midweek off. They're almost even asking for an extra couple of hours. Oh, you have no idea, as I said, the ins and outs, but that's, that's where their biggest problem is coming from. It's these crazy times of playing the first thing in the morning or at the end of the evening and then they're playing on the Tuesday after or whatever it is. So they're not looking for extra, necessarily extra like weeks off or midweeks, but it's kind of like there comes a point where it's, it's player welfare over making sure every time slot is available for people to watch or watch like football. Yeah. Neil, Byron won 3-1 against Salzburg during the week. Is it fair to say that they're going to be the favourites again this year? Oh yeah, um, I actually their, their previous game against Salzburg was a, was a tighter one, and Salzburg should have scored one or two. And um, Bayern were a little bit. I, I watched the first half in particular, and Salzburg were really really good. They got at Bayern's back line. They you know Bayern played this ridiculously high line, and they should have scored. They should have scored one or two, and they didn't capitalise. And then eventually, you know, the quality of Bayern told, and they put them away. Um, albeit by a small margin this game was a little bit different I think Bayern were more comfortable 3-1 definitely didn't flatter them um, but I mean if you look at Bayern's squad from where they finished off in the Champions League final last year they're after Adam Leroy Sané uh, I know they lost Thiago but they, they just seem to have this melt of talent at disposal at the moment and if you look at their wings alone and they're not even playing Sané through the wing most of the time now um, but their wings like they've got Coleman they've got um What's his name on the left wing? Croatian. They've got uh, just serious power, serious pace. There you go. And it's just unbelievable. Their, their recruitment is excellent. Like they were looking for Sane at a stage where they already had three class wingers. And, um, you know, they just, they're a machine. They're an absolute machine. The confidence is high. They're absolutely crushing teams at the moment, domestically and in Europe. And I can't, I have to, it's probably early days yet, but. You don't see many teams that can put it up to them. Um, maybe more so when we get to the knockers when it's over two legs in particular. But uh, it's a daunting task for anybody to get out of group now and draws Bayern. Um, like even two years ago when Liverpool beat them, it was, a, it was a tight enough game, but Liverpool were just that little bit better at the time. 
Um, and you look at Liverpool now, for example, where they've lost a couple of key players. Um, even I fear going up against Bayern right now. I mean, what they did to Chelsea last year absolutely destroyed them over both legs. So, yeah, I think they're definitely out and out from favourites at the moment. Inter Milan got beaten by Real Madrid 2-0 at home, Dave. Hazard's off the mark, albeit a penalty. It's not the same Real Madrid, but still, it's a winning Real Madrid. How do you fancy their chances this year? Not a lot. When you're talking about what Neil's just mentioned, Bayern Munich, there's, there's no contest in my opinion. Yeah, well, they get out of the group, it looks like it now at this stage. But... In the greater scheme of things, I wouldn't put them in the in the same breath as saying Bayern. I wouldn't put them in the same breath as probably even City and even Liverpool if they had a full strength side. Uh, even Paris potentially. Um, I I wouldn't put them on that level. So an an, an English special, a quarter final, in my opinion, in that sense. I just don't think they they're they're potent, they're in a rebuild, a bit like Barcelona, in, in my opinion. They're missing a few players. When you look at the, at the Bayern side that he said, like that, that Neil said, they're just so balanced. Even signed Douglas Costa, I only seen it there in his lineup. Now, there's only one tiny asterisk. They signed Eric Chupamoting, but he must have dirt on. <laughs> he must have the best agent in world football, <laughs> being with Paris. But in relation to Real, they're just a little bit more. They need to um, find that one or two more players or another Galactico or two, because obviously, even the likes of Ramos are getting to that level now where. They're at the John Terry stage where, yes, they can still do a job, but who's got the balls to kind of say, yeah, it's time to freshen things up and change it up. So they're in a bit of a transition year or two. So for me, I would be shocked if they went beyond the quarters, to be honest. Neil, what does City have to do? They had a 1-0 victory away in Greece. What do they have to do to win this Champions League? It's something that the the club aspired to and, and are nearly desperate to win. What's missing? Uh, I tell you what they're missing. They're missing uh, another Aguero. I don't think Jesus is anywhere near the same quality as Aguero is or has been over the last few years. Uh, and they're also missing another David Silva. Um, Bernardo Silva came in last, well, sorry, two years ago. He was an absolute fiend. They had Sané in the wing. They brought in Mares, who never even got near the side. Um, I think they're missing Sterling at the moment, for sure, because uh, he has that bit of pace and he was absolutely in the, probably the best form of his life. Um, in the previous six months um, but I think they're missing they rely too heavily on De Bruyne um, not that he isn't class he, he's absolutely brilliant but they just when they had De Bruyne and Silva in there with Fernandinho that midfield three was probably the best in the world and Silva's gone now Fernandinho's aged they've replaced him with Rodri I think is good but he's a downgrade of Fernandinho they haven't replaced David Silva uh, Phil Foden is not David Silva and their biggest problem at the moment is they don't have a guy that just puts the ball in the net, you know, four out of five times. Um, not saying that, again, Jesus isn't a good striker. He is, and he works his socks off, but he just doesn't, he lacks that touch of class that Aguero has. And City uh, don't seem to be trying to replace him in any way, shape, or form. I don't know who that player is that they have to bring in, but. I yeah, I think they missed uh, the Silva and Aguero scenario. They're not the same team. Ah, it's like they're lacking legs even this year, regardless of that. But um, I think yeah, they, they need one or two more players to probably to win it. Maybe to over to top of Bayern, they definitely need something extra. When you look at City, Dave Niels, I think he's put his finger on it there. David Silva, we all knew how good he was, and it's a bit like the company thing. It's only when they're gone that you realise 
how creative and how important he was to that team. Bernardo Silva hasn't stepped up to the plate since he'd left. The goals are drying up. Sterling hasn't had a sniff. Aguero, when he was there, and uh, Jesus not getting a sniff. There's no real chances being created now on this team. Yeah, like, it's like no, no one's doing it really consistently this season. And even De Bruyne a little bit as well as I, I'm not being overly critical of him, but even he doesn't seem to be firing this season. Since like obviously there was a tiny break, but all of them are just off. Now, whether I'm not saying it's a permanent thing, but they're just off. Maybe is it because they know they're missing one or two, and they're thinking, "Oh, do I want to do this again? Do I really want to go to the well again?" Or they, they don't seem to have that new player that's inspired the rest of the team that are still there. So Silva's gone, which is a lot, but no one's come in to kind of oh. We've got it. We've got the replacement, and yeah, let's do this and roll up our sleeves. Because Sterling, as you said, has been off this season. Obviously, the problems with Aguero. Obviously, Jesus doesn't slot in. Mares and Bernardo Silva on the right wing are not doing it consistently enough. And as I said, even De Bruyne is looking a little bit disillusioned in certain matches. This, this I'm not saying he's playing badly, but he just looks a bit disillusioned. So there's a there's a spark that's missing, and it's quite clear. Silva was the fine. Like obviously. The company was massive, but obviously it just goes to show you that we're a massive part of the spine, which was Silva, and he, he hasn't been replaced. And I think that's potentially an aspect of it. Players know it, and are they willing, the guys that are there, are they willing to go to the well, or is one of them willing to step up? And at the moment, they're not showing it. Manchester United, 4-1 victory at home to Istanbul. I say Istanbul because I can never get the second part <laughs> out. It always sounds like an English county when I say a Baskaskashire. Um Yes. Are, Neil, are Man United a better team when Paul Pogba isn't in the team? Uh, yeah. I, I, you know what it is? I actually think Solskjaer, he's, look, he's between a rock and a hard place, right? You have a guy who's 100 million. He's not doing the business. And it's not that he's not doing the business. He just looks a different player. I think he feels that he's not important in value to the squad. And I, since Bruno Fernandes has come in, He's literally being the number two child and everybody knows it and he knows it. And I'd say that's a massive, massive kick in the backside for someone like Pogba where, you know, you're the guy. You're the go-to guy. When things, you know, you, you want to know that you're the man in the team. And I think literally day one, Fernandez walked in there. It relegated Pogba down and he hasn't been the same player. Maybe in, under a different manager or under a different system or a manager that built a team around him in his proper position, which should be a little bit more further forward in Fernandez's position, uh, maybe then you might get a little bit more out of him. It's actually a scenario now that's getting to the stage where I'd like to see Pogba go somewhere else to see what another manager could get out of him. Because I just don't think... I think the ship has sailed at United now. I think Solskjaer's kind of made his decision. He's keeping him out. He's not making excuses for keeping him on the bench. He's literally saying... I believe this is my best 11 with the two guys sitting in front of the back four. And, you know, they're, they're getting some good results. Definitely in Europe, they've been very, very impressive this year. Um, perfectly set up and they're dealing with teams comfortably. Um, he just has to find a formula that works from in the Premier League. But uh, I think he's making the right decision by Pogba at the moment. Um, Mourinho hit the nail on the head. He did fell out with him, didn't like his qualities uh, on the pitch. And I think Solskjaer has taken a, a long time to get around to it. Or maybe he had to go with Seth to do it, but I think he's making the right decision and leaving it out. It's best for the team. Wren, beaten by Chelsea at home 2-1. 
Dave, when you look at Chelsea now, at the start of the season, people were questioning, and that's what everyone likes to do. They like to question, you know, especially yeah. when you get new players in. Uh, is he good enough? What did they buy him for? He's he's not performing after three games. But when you look at the, the players he brought in, the key ones, I know he's brought Werner in, I know he's brought um, Havertz in, I know uh, Zajic, but Thiago Silva at the back and Mendy in goal, it, it seems to have... You know, really organise that backline. Hundred percent, and you know, like what we said about Bayern a little bit earlier on, it's it, and it's it's balance, like a true balance. You can't just have a top-heavy attack and expect to win if you're leaking goals left, right, and centre. But as you said, Mendy didn't really know much about him, but he hasn't done put a foot wrong. And nowadays in the Premier League if, you, if your goalkeeper's not making mistakes that's a job well done regardless of what else he does because they're all a lot of them are liable to, to make uh, certain instances now Thiago obviously had a, a bit of a shaky uh, Gerrard-esque slip of the first game but ever since like regardless of how he's performing it's the influence he's putting on the others but it's, it's making them step up as well and obviously you've got Ben Chilwell in there with him and then Kurt Zuma and Spilicueta solid players but now they have that leader, a bit like what Van Dijk brought in. All of a sudden, he brought everyone up a level going, I, I need to match, I need to step up to him, or I need to try and impress him. And that's what some of these players are doing now, wanting to probably impress Thiago Silva. And obviously, the general that he is, he's been there and done that, and we all know his quality. So regardless of his age, he's still bringing that. But it's literally a very well-balanced side that slowly started to take shape. Obviously, the front three was a bit experimental at the start, where they're going to put him. Werner has eventually started to slip out to the left and looks more comfortable. Um, obviously, Havertz plays in behind. Abraham at the moment is getting the nod over Giroud. And then it's a toss-up at the moment between Hudson and Dian Ziyech. So he seems to kind of have everyone in the right positions and where they're comfortable in. And then the same in, in the middle of midfield. So it's the overall balance, but then the final pieces in the jigsaw. A little bit Liverpool left in the goalkeeper in the centre-half. And slowly but surely, Chelsea are now back in the frame of not necessarily titles, but back in the frame of being touted as one of the better teams in the league and now potentially starting to kind of cause upsets in Europe. I wrote a piece, oh God, how many weeks ago? It was probably about eight weeks ago and I had the title uh, Lampard under pressure. And it wasn't under pressure in a sense that he's going to lose his job if he doesn't win his next game. It was under pressure because he's after getting these players in now and I'm feeling now that the the club as in Abramovich and, and the, the hierarchy mm. are now this season going to expect silverware going to expect more than what yeah. was expected last year and that's where the pressure is going to come from isn't it? 100% like uh, Abramovich will back you with money but he doesn't tend to sit around and wait for it to take shape. Would he kind of give Lampard four and five years to build a project? I know obviously Liverpool were further away. I don't think he'd give any manager four or five years. I think he very much, I'll give you a couple of hundred million this year, get some of your best players around, now show me results. Um, Coming second in, in the league and getting to a semi-final of a Champions League and getting knocked out of the Cups and quarters and semis won't, won't cut it with him. So it, I think you, I would have to agree because he has form. Like Mourinho, the success he brought, and I think it was a Rosenberg, the famous Rosenberg game, he was gone the next morning. Mm. So nobody's safe in the Chelsea hot seat. Um, so in that sense, yes, he will be under pressure because once he shows any signs that 
they're starting to take shape, which we think they are. Abramovich is going to sit back and go, happy days, show me the, instead of show me the money, show me the trophies, show me the medals. It's interesting when you look at Barcelona, they played Dynamo Kiev away from home, beat them 4 nil, And when you look at their team, they did something similar to what Liverpool did. They chopped and changed around. Messi uh, didn't travel. They had Braithwaite up front. They had the likes of Griezmann, Alba, Dembele on the bench. Yet they're getting the four nil win again. Is this a symptom, Neil, of the the league that they're able to make these changes, or are they just solid and they 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 have a a, a good a good group there behind them? And maybe Liverpool took Atalanta for granted, and Barcelona, you know, maybe them players were out to prove a point. Yeah, I think like Barcelona, regardless of kind of how it all ended last year, I I think it put a false perception on how far they've fallen. Like, they haven't fallen from a kind of a number one to a number 20 position. Their still pedigree in Europe is still phenomenal. Like, they're always in the quarterfinal semi-finals. They don't go out in group stages. They get the job done. Like, the the blueprint for Barcelona playing and going out and exposing teams and attacking teams has always been there. So they're always going to go and they're always going to score goals. The problem with Barcelona is you associate them then with big nights and big games. And in the last two years at the final hurdle, they've been absolutely smashed, probably the last three years, they've been smashed out of the park completely. So Liverpool blew them away. You know, they, it was a Roma overturned a huge result against them. I think just when, the only question about them is, on the big nights, on the big mentality, they seem to crumble. And I don't see that being any different this year if they get to another big night. But, in the league, it's business as normal. They still pick up the points there. They still have the squad like, you've got Dembele and Griezmann and Coutinho, these guys that maybe they weren't making the first 11 on the big nights because they didn't, the manager didn't have trust in them or they weren't playing into form. But they're still very, very good players on their day and more than good enough to deal with the average size in Europe that you find yourself in the group with. So, you know, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't worry about anything that Barcelona would put out. Much like Liverpool, I don't think Liverpool put out a, a massively understrained team to what they had. I mean, fair enough, they strengthened on the bench. But it was probably the attitude and maybe the just the fluency wasn't there. Now, obviously, Klopp didn't set them out to do that. He sent them out with a better attitude in the second half. But you get that in football. You know, it could have happened to Barcelona where they could have become unstuck and drew the game one all. Same thing with Liverpool. But Liverpool just, yeah. I know you can compare the two. I think they both went out with the same intentions. Just obviously, Barcelona executed the plan better than Liverpool did. Yeah, and I'm currently looking at the league table. Barcelona in 13th position at the moment. A, a, a massive 12 points behind leaders, Real Sociedad. So it's not all pretty over there in Spain at the moment. They do have two games in hand. So, um, and, and, and Roy, just to, Roy, sorry mate, just to kind of, uh, kind of back up Neil's point about the big games, like the Yorkers, he crumbled and, and didn't put up much uh, of a response against uh, Real Madrid a couple of weeks ago in the class though when you were saying about the big games. So there is an element of truth in that, that yeah, they'll beat the bread and butter, but when it comes to the really big moments, they're, they're, they're sadly lacking. Yeah, I, I'm looking at the top of the Premier League, at Tottenham Hotspur, who everyone laughed at Harry Redknapp when he said on, I remember on transfer deadline day, uh, even his own son laughed at him when he said that I definitely think that these can go on and uh, compete and win this league. And they all sat in silence and then chuckled and laughed and then they slagged them for the rest of it. Well, Dave, kind of looks like he's uh, he's got a point. Of course he does. Because uh, 
Yeah, well, it was shot of a doubt now, sitting top of the table. Look, it's early doors. You know, we all waxed lyrical like, three or four weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago with Everton, and then they blew up a little bit against the, the, the slightly bigger sides, and now they're back deep the teams below them. So I wouldn't get overly excited just yet about Tottenham, but I think they have obviously more than, say, Everton. Harry Kane, the big players seem to be buying into what the manager's doing, and it seems to be gelling together. Uh, last year, it was a bit touchy-feely, kind of, has Mourinho still got it? Is he still kind of dinosaur-y type tactic? But now it seems there's a there's a good marriage between the team and the manager. The manager is getting the best out of the players, and the players are buying into it, and they're all kind of rowing in the one direction. So, without a shadow of a doubt, it's it watch this space, but there's definitely conviction in it, without a shadow of a doubt. But I wouldn't get excited just yet, because it It'd be interesting to see when a defeat happens because, you know, Mourinho can be very, it's never our fault and it's certainly not my fault. Like, it, it can be, in my opinion, it might still be a bit fragile. So it'd be interesting to see if they if they lose one of the big ones coming up or if they lose a game where you wouldn't expect. Does it just kind of continue the next game as business as usual? There's a bit of fragility, but at the same time, there is signs there that they are kind of clicking together and that can only be a good thing for sports. Yeah, Leicester are obviously causing problems as well for everyone. It's great to see Southampton up there in fifth place. It, 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 unbelievable how they've sort of changed around in a whole calendar year. Not even calendar year, in a, in a full year since last November when they got murdered uh, by Leicester. So who can realistically, is who's realistically going to go for them top four places? Because you look at Manchester United in 10th place on 13 points, Manchester City in 13, Arsenal in 12th on 13 and 12 points respectively. Is there a gap here, a realistic gap here for one of them teams to uh, sneak in ahead of the normal top four or big six? Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I, I think... I, I think in the short term, definitely, because Man United still haven't got off their backside yet. They just don't seem to get the right blend when they're playing in the Premier League. So they're allowing teams to, 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 to get ahead of them. But it's much like last year when they looked a little bit dead and buried. And then, you know, in fairness to them, they did an unbelievable run in to, to grab what was the third in the end. They did brilliantly. Uh, Chelsea are definitely going to be up there because they're after starting off great. Liverpool are up there. It, it's interesting they are up there with all the complaints and the, and the, and the kind of the injuries and issues they've had um, City is the interesting one um, and they touched on it there they're, they just seem like to be shot at the moment but you still expect them to accumulate enough points to get up there um, this reminds me a little of Leicester last year when they got out in front and at one stage they were something like 12, 14 points you know ahead of everybody and Spurs clawed them back and Chelsea clawed them back and United clawed them back and eventually United and Chelsea overhauled them. And I would see Southampton in the same bracket as that. Um, you know, they're not going to last. Uh, I still think the cream of the crop is going to rise. You're going to have the top six this year, I think, is going to be the proper top six, less Arsenal. Um, I think United are going to be up there regardless. I think City are going to be up there. Chelsea, Liverpool, and Spurs definitely just going along with what Dave's saying there. I think there's something different about Spurs this year. Not necessarily that they're going to win it, but Mourinho is slowly but surely changing the mentality. Um, and I think uh, this year is going to be probably the first 80-point league win in quite a while, which again plays into Mourinho's hands because he'll win most of the games against the lower, you know, outside the top six, and he'll strangle and frustrate the top six to try to get 
an accumulation of points. Um, but I don't see, you know, like an Everton or a Southampton or one of them breaking that. Um, I think this year of all years, I think the, it's going to be a war of attrition, survival of the fittest, and the, the best teams with the biggest squads are going to see it through in the end. Dave Burnley got a, a 1-0 victory there the other day. It's their first one. Have they got now enough to... Will Sean Dyche keep them out of that bottom three? You do look at the other teams that are down there. Sheffield United struggling to, to get goals even. Yeah. West Brom and Fulham, are they strong enough? Are, have Burnley just got enough, do you think? And, and, and maybe the manager just to get them back out there again? Some people were doubting that at the start of the season. Yeah. Know-how might just be enough because if you look at that bottom four, like it's not a huge gap, but like Burnley are four or Burnley are four points off Brighton and sixteenth, and then Newcastle are on eleven. Like Sheffield United are already kind of you're worried for them considering as Eddie Grant. But if you look at that Sheffield United, West Brom, Fulham, and Burnley, the lack of goals, you know, that's what it ultimately is down to, in my opinion, and the lack of strikers. You know, uh, if you look at Burnley have only got four. Fulham actually have nine. West Brom have six. Sheffield United have four. So in that sense, on that alone, I would say Burnley are far from out of it. The lack of goals, one of them needs to click. Out of them four teams, need the striker to click. And at the moment, that you couldn't put your finger on who it could be of any of them. And they, when I say click, I'm talking maybe between 10 and 15. And I don't think any of them have anyone, let alone will anyone do it. So it could be already looking at them for Sheffield United nine games in now we can't it's not a blip they're in there now unfortunately for their own benefit so with Burnley no absolutely far from uh, they're not out of the woods that's for sure hopefully as I said Sean Dice's know-how and some a bit of experience and know-how and now might get them out of it but no they are still smack bang in the middle of it with only four goals scored they are struggling badly until uh, Rodriguez or Wood or if they find somebody on loan in January there unfortunately in the middle of it for me Okay, we're going to leave it there because we've been chatting an awful long time and Diego took up a quite <laughs> a bit of our time so uh, listen Neil thanks very much Dave thanks very much and we'll talk thanks to you guys. next week <laughs>